Hello, welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino. I'm a therapist in Chicago. I'm also a teacher. I'm also a podcaster. I guess you knew that because you were listening to this. <laughs> I do a bunch of other shit that I don't even want to talk about right now. What we're going to talk about today is going back to normal? Question mark? I just wanted to say for anybody out there who's freaking out right now about the fact that we're kind of sort of going back to normal, you are not alone. I was just thinking to myself the other day and had a conversation with a client about this, feeling like I don't have any friends, which is not true. I have too many friends, <laughs> so many friends that I can't keep up with. But I've gotten so used to not making plans with people that I forget who all of my people are. Like I've got my inner circle that I've been talking to this whole pandemic, but everybody else, I'm like, crickets, crickets. So there's that. And then there's the anxiety, right? Like I know the CDC said it's okay to go out without masks on, but dudes, like I, I don't know, man. I'm scared. I'm struggling. And because I haven't been with people, I find that I am a super awkward weirdo whenever I'm actually in the presence of another human being. When I go out to dinner with my husband, I can't really look him in the eye for very long <laughs> because I'm just not used to looking at someone for an extended period of time. So I don't know what the fuck is going to happen once I start seeing clients in person again. I don't know, friends. But anyway, I just wanted to note any of that in case other folks were feeling it, thinking it, worrying about it, whatever. You're not alone. So couple things. You can help out the podcast. If you're a fan of the podcast, if you're here, I hope you're a fan. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcast. You can follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcast. You can also become a Patreon donor, which is amazing. You can donate as little as $1 a month. And even though that might not feel like a lot, it's actually super helpful and super touches my heart. And I will send you a little thank you, welcome gift if you are willing to donate that. So that's some shit. We'll move on to today's amazing, wonderful, heartfelt guest. Sarah Moskowitz is a Chicago-based psychotherapist, mother, and artist. She specializes in developmental trauma and anxiety and guides clients to gain access to the wisdom contained within their bodies. Sarah is certified as a somatic experiencing practitioner and holds master's degrees in both social work and education. So this conversation with Sarah was really heartfelt, and I just love her so much. And we ended up doing a NARM session together. She was willing to be a, a test person, a test subject for me as I'm trying to get my certification in the NARM master's program. So I love Sarah so much, and I know that you're going to love her too. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer, Sarah. Hello. Thank you. <laughs> she says timidly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very excited that you're here today. I'm very excited to be talking to you. I'll yeah. be a little bit nervous. Yeah. Like we said before recording, like let's just have those with us. Right. Right. Let's note them, invite them into the room. And if they need anything, they can let us know. Right. Yeah. But I'm, I'm excited to talk more today despite the presence of yeah. deep anxiety. Yeah. Well, how did we meet? I was trying to think and I literally couldn't remember how we got connected. I think it's a cute little story. So I walked into a training with Dave Berger and Abby Blakesley and you yes. were sitting in like the semi front row, but not front front. 
and you were like surrounded by crystals. And I was like, yup. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I bring my crystals to trainings just in case I need them. Right. There was like one like right under your chair and you're like, this one's for my anchoring. And I was like, I'll sit next to you. And then I think we just chatted from there. That's right. I forgot about that. I sometimes forget that I was even at that training, but I learned so much there Mm -hmm. and actually got to interview Dave for Transforming Trauma. That is amazing. But that's how we met. Right. Yes. And why don't you tell folks a little snippet more of who you are, what you do? Yeah, so I am a somatic psychotherapist, meaning that I see people in the psychotherapeutic context and I use a somatic-based approach using the body in the room. It is just as important, if not my bias, like a little bit more important than the narrative that runs in our brain all the time. I think that the key to healing trauma And particularly the type of trauma that I specialize in is developmental trauma, trauma sustained in the first few years of life. The key to that is really getting the body on board and befriending that. And so I work with all types of clients with all types of backgrounds, but I'd say one thread that kind of weaves everyone together is that early developmental trauma piece. Mm -hmm. Which that's what I'm working with now too. So we got lots to talk about. Because you you haven't done any NARM training, right? Not yet. It's on my like to learn list. Yeah. Like, many people have to do lists. Like I have a I know, to right? Learn. Right. <laughs> it's a very expensive list. I know. It's expensive to be a therapist, you guys. Mm-hmm. You wonder why we have to charge one fifty an hour because the trainings are like five thousand dollars for one weekend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's why. Because <laughs> you want us to know our shit, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Well, let's dive in if you are willing to do so and tell us. I, I love therapist origin stories. And I've told all the podcast listeners our very deep, dark secret that we specialize in the things that we have experienced in some shape or form. So I'm curious, right? And whatever feels appropriate for you to share, please tell us. Sarah was a, a wee babe. <laughs> and then decided to become a therapist. You know that the story does start with like my in utero experience. And yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I w- I'd love for you to bring that in. Yeah. Um. So in a weird, but I think that's okay for this context kind of way, I think that my soul chose this path and it chose this like very strange combination of variables. It was like, okay, I want like a ton of early trauma, but like also I want like a ton of support and I need like Mm. this kind of financial access to this care, but I also want like shit to get real fucked up. And so like, it just (laughs) kind of like, (laughs) I love that description. (laughs) So there are a lot of paradoxes that like dialectic of like, I was really, really, really wanted as a kid. Like my parents tried for a really long time to have Mm. me and that was lovely. And there was an extraordinary amount of pressure that came along with that. And I feel that. Yeah. Part of that story is also that my parents ended up using a sperm donor to conceive me, which means that like mm. on some level I was so wanted. And then on this other, like very existential level, there is this like element of being like totally unwanted. Right. And unknown to your father. Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. So the donor is semi-unknown to me that that story develops a little further down the line. I actually didn't know about that until I was in my like mid to late 20s. Wow. And you're not much older than that now. How old are you? No, I am not. I'm 30. I'm 30. Yeah. So this is 
kind of fresh. It's pretty fresh. Mm. Yeah. No longer super tender, thankfully. I mean, as it's spaces, but right. that was news to my identity for sure. <laughs> but I think growing up, I was always aware, not necessarily of that dynamic because that's pretty specific, mm-hmm. but I think I was always very aware that there was stuff that was unspoken in my family of origin that even though we like for sure never talked about it was like best if I navigated around it. And Mm. so really early on, I developed this skill of being able to talk to people on one level of being like, you want to hear those words coming out of your mouth and you want me to see you that way. But you also want me to treat you like the inner child that's actually like speaking right now. And I can do both. And like, while that is very stressful for a child and should not be what, in my opinion, a child is responsible for, it does make like a pretty good therapist. So right, right. still transfers nicely. I just had a thought. If we keep getting healthier as humans and therapists don't experience the trauma that we experience as children, will people be shitty therapists in the future? <laughs> Let's hope a not. tree falls in a forest. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Side note. That's just a side note. But back to your story. Yeah, it's actually it's funny. That makes me think. I, <laughs> so I have a, a baby. He is 17 months old now. And people are like, do you want him to be a therapist? I'm like, I kind of hope not. Like, I kind of feel like he doesn't feel compelled to be honest. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. Just be an accountant. Yeah. <laughs> right. Do whatever you want to do. Who knows right. what it'll be. <laughs> right. But yeah. So we'll fast forward a bit through the childhood. But basically, I am the soother while also like never actually taking the like ownership of that role. Both my parents had their own background and really in like the most lovely and loving of way wanted me to experience no pain ever, no distress Mm. ever, which is so kind and like really came from a good place. Right. And also when one has big feelings, a lot of early trauma already and just like it's an old soul. Like I mm-hmm. had those experiences and I had that pain and I had to go somewhere and it just got pushed down into my body. I hear that. So, you know, lots of stomach aches and like all the psychosomatic bit that goes with it. And I learned also through that process to really live in my mind, like being highly intellectual, just like I was always a good thinker. I was smart. So most of my like adolescence and even early 20s was really focused on like academic achievement and like all over intellectual living, really didn't check in very much with my body. And after college, I was planning actually to go to med school, which spoiler alert, did not happen. (laughs) (laughs) And in between, um, there was a program called Teach for America that was recruiting at my college. And they said, like, it's the hardest thing you'll ever do. And I was like, I love hard things. I'll do that. I'm a badass. Right. Not knowing that the hardest thing that I had, like, cognitively experienced in my life was, like, nowhere near what I was about to walk into. Hmm. So I'd come from this family with a ton of privilege and no boundaries like Mm. actually no boundaries and my love language of just giving what I had until the other person was happy. And I walked Mm. into this classroom for high school students. So to paint the picture, I'm 22. My kids are 18. They tower over me. I'm like five one. Mm. And they had just the most extraordinary lives and the most incredible trauma histories that I'd ever experienced. And I I had no language for that at the time, but I knew... Mm -hmm that they could not learn and that what I was giving them like of myself was not making it better. It was a recipe for burnout. (laughs) And 
Can I pause you right there for one second to relate? Because yeah. my undergrad was music education and yeah. I didn't teach. I didn't even student teach. So I graduated with a useless degree. And that's <laughs> the exact reason I couldn't really articulate it at the time. I just knew that it would be too much. Good for you. All of the pain that was happening and that I would want to fix all of that. I just knew it. And then, yeah, later becoming a therapist. So it's really interesting that we share that, even though I didn't have the actual experience. (laughs) Yeah, and and good for you for knowing because I did not have that awareness going into it. And it really, on like every level, just like knocked me down as a human. And I, for many, many years, rebuild that, even my sense of safety and happiness and grounding Mm. in the world. And how do I exist at my home with my full refrigerator of food when people I adore don't have food tonight? I mean, like really big questions that I had never even contemplated before. But I ended my two years there knowing that I was not going to be a teacher forever, but also knowing that my favorite part of my day was talking to my kids like they were humans and working on the relational piece with them. Like that was so much more important to me as a person, not not to society as a whole. But for me, it was more important to know my kids as people and give them the tools to even have a chance of being able to learn. Because like, duh, whose brain can learn when they are constantly being traumatized? And I was just so much more interested in that than I was in like conveying the laws of physics to my kids. (laughs) So that took me back to grad school for social work. And since then have been learning all about somatic experiencing. I got my certification in that after I graduated. And now I work in a private practice, working with people, doing the work of teasing apart early developmental trauma and giving some alternative experiences to people. Because I I pretty firmly believe that you can't give what you didn't get. So Mm -hmm. I do a little giving of things that I've been given along the way and, and give people that experience. And it's really, really powerful. I work with a lot of parents just because a lot of times that people figure out that they have developmental trauma is when they have kids themselves. I don't limit myself to that population at all. It just tends to be a time where people are like, oh God, why am I my mother? Yeah, right. (laughs) So yeah, that kind of, that kind of lands me here. Mm, Yeah, that you can't give what you didn't get. That's why we therapists need to be doing our own work. It's so interesting. Like when I think back on like my trajectory as a therapist going into addiction, at first I didn't understand why I went into addiction. I didn't recognize it in my family quite yet, even though like there were things that were like, uh, duh, (laughs) but I didn't recognize that. And I always felt like on the outside being just a person who loves someone who struggles with addiction. And then when I started to understand trauma. And it wasn't, it truly wasn't until I started training in sensory motor psychotherapy that I was like, oh, I was traumatized. And that experience of going through my own treatment, saying I am a person in recovery, like that just changed the game completely. I mean, like, obviously I've been in therapy my whole life and have fucking loved it. So I was in the client seat there, but there was just like a different level of depth Absolutely. When it's trauma related. And I think it's a felt sense. Like I, I truly think not that I by any means have to go through the same experience that my client in front of me has had, but unless I am willing to on like right. a like a deep level to mm-hmm. go to that depth of wherever they are, mm-hmm. then I'm not gonna truly be in service to that person. 
maybe I'll be the bridge to them finding someone who they really need. But like, I don't think that I hold space for someone unless I'm willing to feel it with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Take it at the end of the day, because I'm not about that anymore, but at least go there in the process. Right. Absolutely. And I'm curious your answer to this, because people will ask me like, oh, how are you so brave, like being vulnerable? And it's like, oh, I don't know. That's, I didn't feel, it doesn't feel brave. Like, sure, it looks like that from the outside. That's not what it feels like internally, right? right. I'm just kind of living my life and doing the thing, like you said earlier, that my soul is supposed to do. And I think in this lifetime, my soul is supposed to heal a fuck ton of shit. Right. And I, I don't particularly feel like I'm given a choice. I like don't really understand slash like sometimes kind of envy those people that are like, oh, I never thought about doing my own work. Like it is a physically uncomfortable experience. It's psychologically uncomfortable. I'm not present mm-hmm. to my family. Like if I am not being clear with myself, I'm unpleasant. <laughs> right. So I, I feel like compelled more than anything to just, I mean, even the beginning of this podcast, it was like, yeah, I'm feeling awful inside, but like it's time to do this. So like Mm. here we are together, you know? Yeah. Is there something in particular about making your story public that feels icky, vulnerable, weird? Yeah, I think it's probably some remnant of something I've internalized from my family system of like, we don't talk about the things that aren't pretty. Mm. And much as I've like actually created a career in talking about the things that aren't as pretty. I'm often on the the listening end of that. And so I think that there is just some stuck stuff there that I mm-hmm. reckon with when it comes to being transparent about who I am and maybe saying things that would insult somebody or would mm-hmm. make someone feel like they weren't a good enough whatever in my life. Mm-hmm. Like I hold a lot of protective qualities over those people still. Yeah. Honestly, it helps that my family is not alive because yeah. then I don't really have to worry about that. <laughs> yeah. Another thing I was thinking too, though, as you were talking in the Transforming Trauma podcast, we've spent a decent amount of time centering the Jewish experience. And what mm-hmm. I've learned in having these conversations is that sometimes because of transgenerational trauma, like a Jew being seen in Hitler times was literally the worst thing you could do would be to put yourself out there. So I wonder if there's any of that generational stuff too, being like, don't be visible. I will throw that into the mix because like you never know. And especially for my family history, because I I have two parents that I know, and then we have this like kind of black box of a genetic donor. And so, I mean, I put everything in that black box. I'm like, yeah, it was probably him. This is probably generational trauma. Mm. But I do know that that was certainly a possibility. So Mm. I will give you that. Yeah. Oh, you don't have to give it to me. (laughs) But sure, we can can throw it in the soup, right? (laughs) The soup of trauma. (laughs) Let's not have that be the episode title. That's a terrible title. Would you be willing to talk about the the sperm donor and you yeah. coming to recognize all of that? Because I think that's very impactful from a trauma perspective, but not something that we necessarily talk about all the time. Yeah, yeah. And will probably become more and more relevant as I think there is more, you know, IVF and surrogacy and all of those sorts of things happening for folks. Yeah, totally happy to talk through it. So when I was in my mid to late 20s, I felt so super compelled to give an ancestry DNA kit to my parents. <laughs> like my intuition was like, get it for them, get it for them. And I was like, okay, like I just kind of listen to my intuition. It just, it's easier, it's more quiet when I just listen to it. And from that experience learned that 
in fact, my parents used a donor and whatnot. And I, I sat on that and I processed that on my own for many years. Wait, so you did the kit yourself or? I didn't actually end up doing the kit. Oh, so just because you like, got it oh, for them? I'm going to get this. Yeah, yeah. Oh. I was like, hey, I'm going to get this for dad. And my mom was like, oh, P.S. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. So you inadvertently forced them to tell you. I outed them. Oh, shit. Wow. So that happened. So I was like, thank you, intuition. I'm super glad that you were just like insistent on that particular present. But it did clarify some things for me. And I was thinking about being a parent at the time. And I think it was something really important that I think I needed to come to terms with before going through that process myself. And so I I sat with that for a really, really long time, made a lot of art about it, did a lot of poetry. And by the way, felt every single feeling that one can feel in the world about this process. Like right now, I, I think I talk about it and more like, oh, this is a cool story. But there was certainly a time where I couldn't even put words to this without dissociating. I mean, it was pretty intense for me. If you don't mind, yeah. you know, kind of teasing some of that out, what were the feelings? Because I can, I can imagine, but <laughs> I'd love for you to really make yeah. that clear. So profound anger, first mm-hmm. of all. At your parents? At, at my parents, initially. I mean, again, I have every feeling ever, but initially I think... I felt a lot of anger mixed with total compassion of like, I totally understand why you made this choice. Their doctor told them, never tell anybody, never tell a soul in your family. Like, oh, like so much shame. Right? Right? That's terrible. Bad advice, doctor. Horrible advice. It was best practice around that time to not tell children. So they were, they were following instructions. They were not trying to Mm -hmm. (laughs) my brain, but I felt a lot of anger at just like what felt kind of irresponsible. Like what if I had slept with someone that was related to me and I didn't know? What if I like, right? I mean, I've been walking around with a different medical history than I thought I had. I mean, there's just so many implications that people don't necessarily consider unless they've gone through it themselves. Mm-hmm. So a lot of anger. And I think I, I mostly hung out in anger. <laughs> and behind that, of course, was just so much grief, so much grief around not being told about being like what felt like kind of like lied to grief around my dad, not being the person that I thought he was to me. Right. right. That sticks around. I, I do have that part of me that just wishes that he were just like fully mine right. in that way. A lot of social, just like, how do I tell my friends? <laughs> how do I mm-hmm. tell my husband who I, I mean, I ended up just walking into the next room and being like, Oh my God. <laughs> but just mm-hmm. a lot of confusion about how to experience my identity in the world. Some curiosity, like really deep down <laughs> that I haven't, didn't really access until pretty recently. But yeah, basically everything one could feel, usually mm-hmm. simultaneously. <laughs> and just like this weight of my family's experience. Like I felt like I was the one that was like, okay, now you too don't talk about this. And you too will keep the secret with us. And mm-hmm. I said, like, I'm not... I'm not going to do that. Like, I'm not going to be your secret keeper. And I wasn't kind of like I told anyone who didn't know my family. I was like, guys, guess what? This is <laughs> like, it's a good therapist party trick to be like, guess what I got? going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but for people that knew my family, it was really hard to be like, oh, I have this thing to tell you, but don't say it to my family because like they don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. So I, I really didn't actually speak about it with anyone in that like really close circle 
probably till like mid pandemic. Like, I mean, this is active, ongoing work. Wow. Sarah, well, thank you for being willing to share that here. That that feels really special. Yeah. I'm grateful to to have a space to like come out with it once and for all. Just point people to this podcast. Yeah, (laughs) right. Well, I actually did have somebody comment on, it was again, a transforming trauma podcast, but wanting to talk about, I can't remember if for her, it was an egg donor or a sperm donor or IVF mm. or, or what it was, but yeah, someone was asking for this. So wow. you answered the call. That's so weird. I love that. Yeah. I hope they listen to this. Me too. Yeah. But to make things even, you know, kind of divine timing a bit weirder over the course of the pandemic, I started getting that pull again, that little nudge. Maybe I'd worked through enough of my anger that like the curiosity was emerging where I was like, I wonder who else has had this experience. And there's this thing called the Donor Sibling Registry, which is a website of people that register and say, hi, I am a donor conceived human. And here's the information I know about where my parents got the sperm, egg, whatever. And I put in my information and it popped up that there were like four entries on my thing. And it could show you that there was a picture and that there was a message, but didn't tell you what the picture was of or what the message was. And I was like, oh my God, do I know? Like, do I click it? Do I pay the hundred bucks or whatever it is? Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. So I'm on the edge of my motherfucking seat. This is (laughs) fascinating. So I took it to therapy, like a good therapist does. And I said, when I make this decision, am I doing this from spite? Am I doing this mm. from like this enormous amount of anger that's followed me the past few years? Or am I like, mm. actually, like, do I actually want to know? And thought through a million things like, okay, what if actually I have a list in my journal of what if they're stalkers? What if they're serial mm. killers? What if I meet these people and they're horrible? Mm. And I ran through those scenarios in my head and I was like, no, I, I still want to know. And it's not because I need something from these people. But there's just a part of me that feels like it, I want to know. So after flashing all that out, which took a long time, I like clicked the button. And oh my God, Sarah, story. So within seconds, I get messages from a couple of people and read this one person's bio. She has a picture, which I like, that was the thing that pushed me over the edge. These people like, first of all, look like me, which is so Sarah. weird. Yeah. Some more than others. But this woman, I read her bio, a therapist, has a kid my kid's age, intuitive, loves nature, is an artist. I mean, like, I've been cloned. Holy shit. Right. So I messaged them and they messaged me back and they're like, oh, by the way, we have a welcome packet for our siblings. Do you want me to send it to you? Wait, what? So is it? The children of this sperm donor, essentially. The children of this one sperm donor, because remember, these things are not regulated in the late 80s, early 90s. There's no like, oh, you can only be donated to like X amount of families like they have in place now. So I have many more half siblings. I love your face right now. I'm Sarah, sorry. Oh, I wish everybody could. My jaw's on the floor. I'm at the edge of my seat. I cannot believe this. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. To find this all out in your late 20s. Mm-hmm. Wow. Right. Really thought I had like some sense of who I was, but this threw me Right. This over. changes everything. Totally. Totally. Oh it changes God. everything. And it also made so many things just land. Like right. it made so many things just be like, oh, I did always think I was a little weird. This makes worse. <laughs> wow. So I'm sent this welcome packet. And in it are a list 
first of all, it starts with group norms. It starts with like, here's how we respect one another's privacy. And I was like, these are my people. (laughs) This is incredible. You (laughs) couldn't have like gotten a better family too for them to have a fucking welcome. Welcome to the sperm family. Like what? (laughs) Right. It's real weird. We don't all know each other's names. Like not everyone even wants to connect with one another. Like my concept of what family is, is just like shattered because I had right. to like have this whole new thing fit into it. But for the people that chose to share, there were pictures and there were bios and there was a like survey of your temperament because many of us are therapists. So like Whoa. many of us are interested, right? Come on. I know. I know the universe is just like right? messing with me at this point. So it's been a really interesting process. Some people have really connected to, and there's been a lot of parallel process and some people have known their whole lives and they're like, whatever, this really isn't something I need to talk about. Nice Mm. to meet though. And everything in between. So it's weird to not even know how many half siblings I have. Like that's a weird thing to wrap your brain around, but I've come to kind of think of it as like just bonus Mm -hmm. family that I always thought I had that I still have that are just like my family contributed to my childhood experiences and to my adult experiences. And I have these like set of bonus people that some of them feel like soul people, like where you meet and you're just like, oh, hey, nice to see you again. And then some people that I don't click with, like, fine, I don't click with everyone. Anyway. I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes my ego gets a little tender about it. It's like, why don't they love me? I'm like, this right. isn't about you, Sarah, relax. Right. Uh, <laughs> it still gets tripped up from time to time. But yeah, it's totally ongoing and it's totally new and it is just mind-boggling. Totally. And you know what else is interesting? Another weird connection we have and don't have at the same time. I was an egg donor. (gasps) Wow. I was an egg donor in my early 20s when I first moved to Chicago and had no money and was like, how do I get money? How do I pay off my credit cards? I'll donate my eggs. So I donated to two families and I've always wanted the kids to find me just because I want to see genetically like what what happened? Like what parts of me came through? Could there be a better scenario to like have a child and not have had to raise it? (laughs) (laughs) Like I don't want to do that shit, but I would love to like know like can they sing? Like, are they a therapist? Like what things come out of that? It's so fascinating. So it's so funny that we have these kind of adjacent. Adjacent. I've never met a donor human before. So this is so interesting. Well, do you have questions for me? I I speak for all donors, all donors. (laughs) I have all types of things that I project onto my donors. (laughs) You want those. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Wow. That's quite fascinating. Yeah. Back to your story. Like, that's just so, well, I mean, we can go wherever, but just thinking like, again, I am holding that story very tenderly. And again, it's just so great for you to be talking about this openly. And I hope that more people, first of all, fucking find out because, you know, your intuition really rang the bell, but I'm sure there's so many people who don't even know that this right. is their experience and they're walking around going like, why do I feel like an outsider in my family? And their parents are like, mm-hmm, should we tell them? Should we tell them? No, the doctor said no. Right, totally. And I don't know if I ever felt like an outsider in my family. I think I felt like an outsider to like the human race. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is like, oh, okay. Maybe this is why I've never quite made sense to myself, mm. you know? 
you could be an alien though too. Always possible. Have you heard of Dolores Cannon? No. Okay, this is some crazy out there shit. So just if you're listening, I'm not a crazy person. I hold this very loosely, but I just, I love the idea of it. And so I think that it's very sweet. So she talks about there being three waves of volunteers from other celestial areas in the universe that come to earth and they had like specific roles in like getting humanity to basically move forward because they realized humans were stupid and we couldn't do it ourselves. So we needed interstellar beings to come to the planet and help us out. So again, I'm not saying that this is what it is, but I just love, it's a sweet story, right? But anyway, so you could be an alien is what I'm saying. Yes. I mean, theoretically, but I think what we have certainly done is anything weird I say now pales in comparison to that story. (laughs) And I just took a drink and couldn't (laughs) guffaw the way I wanted to. Yes, that's what we do. We get we get weird here. That's funny. That is how to make me feel comfortable. I'm no longer the weirdest person in the room. Yay! (laughs) You're welcome. So, well, let's see if we can pivot from that wonderful story. You actually have to read some of it though. It's really, it's very, it's very sweet. She's like, no, I'm not going to fucking read that stupid shit. I'll read your story for you. I'm a, I'm a rule follower at heart. So if I say I'm going to do it, I'm about to do it. (laughs) I'll send you a book. Um, but let's pivot and change topics. How do you feel about the term healer? So every time that I listen to your podcast, which is quite frequently, I answer this in my head. The answer I'm going to land with today is that I think that I often step into the archetype of a healer. So I heard someone explain the role of archetypes really beautifully once. It's kind of this blueprint, this template of like, here are the basic parts. And then when you step into it yourself, you bring your own soul and your own kind of unique qualities into it. So it's both a universal thing and also something very unique to you. And I think that at times I will step into the role of a healer and try my best to embody a non-judgmental stance and a groundedness and a depth and just create space for people to do what they whatever they need to do. And I am not always in that space. <laughs> and I, in fact, try pretty intentionally to turn that off um, when I'm not at work because that can be a very energy-consuming space mm-hmm. for me to be in if it's not reciprocal. Mm-hmm. So if I'm not being paid for it and I've not chosen it, but I am like, for example, something I'm learning in parenthood at the park and watching other kids interact with their parents and mm-hmm. being like, oh my God, I know where this is going. Oh, ugh, that would be awful. Yeah. Another reason I'm glad I don't have children. <laughs> I'm working on it. I love this conversation <laughs> so much. But like in that space, it wasn't particularly helpful or wanted from any party involved Mm -mm, for me to mm -mm. step into that role. And like the pull for it has always been there. Mm -hmm. So I try to turn it on and off when I'm not at work. Like if you're not paying me, I'm not healing you. The end. Yeah. (laughs) So you answered it and didn't answer it. And it's not a yes or no question, but I guess I kind of want a yes or no with that. Just based on what you said. I would say, yeah. I would say when I'm at work, yes. Hey. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's always on. And like sometimes I'm at work and I'm not doing what I would consider to be the standards of like what healing is. Mm-hmm. But on those days, I try to go home and reflect and do better the next time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, being in a healing profession during the pandemic <laughs> has definitely been one of the most challenging things on a soul level, on an energetic level. 
And it's interesting because there's a certain amount of humanization that I want from my clients and they will never understand what this feels like, except for my clients who are therapists. But, you know, just the general run-of-the-mill client will never understand that. But I sometimes wish they would. And also, too, I think of it's like being a boss. Like, there are certain things I wish that my staff would understand. I think it's also like being a parent, right? It's so similar that Mm -hmm. you want your child to appreciate all that you do (laughs) with your soul, right? And I'm doing the best I can. And yet that's not their job. Right. And and almost a sign of me doing a good job is them having no idea sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, how do you feel about the term wounded healer? I can probably guess, but yeah. I don't I hear what you just, have to say. I think it just comes along. I mean, like I will name that my first response to that is like wounded. I'm not wounded. You're wounded. I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> but we all that's know the that's the therapist version of your mom. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think that for sure, those woundings are what make us human, much as I'd love to just deny that and pretend that that's not a part of me. I know that that's also where my capacity to connect to people comes from and my capacity for like painting and poetry and other things that really fuel me and my identity as a human come mm-hmm. from that place of pain. They don't need to stay in that place of pain as I've learned through the years. Like just because I go there doesn't mean I have to then intentionally go there and stay there for a really long time. Yep. But I think it's part of the picture. Mm-hmm. Say a little bit more about, because I saw you kind of throw up that like, huh, to the term wounding, right? I'm not wounded, you're wounded. What is it about that that feels so, I'm going to say the word offensive. I don't know if that's the word you'd use, but that's mm-hmm. what I, that's the energy I felt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what is so offensive about that? Oh, that's such a good question. That shit comes from Narm. <laughs> Thank you, Narm. <laughs> I think that at my core, there's still a deep part of me that's like, when I'm perfect, I'll be loved. Woof. When I figure this out perfectly, then I will have universal love and acceptance and it will mm. just be so much smoother. And things that challenge that belief, like for example, admitting that I'm a person with mm. things to work on and pain that I carry with me, it's just like on an existential level, kind of frightening. And I mm. think that one of my go-to defense mechanisms is judgment when I'm feeling threatened. So I think Mm. that's where that comes from is Mm. like, I don't think that that judgment really comes up with my clients because I'm not feeling particularly threatened in that space. But if, and when I am in the real world, that tends to be what I lead with. So I'm sure it was a little bit of that. Mm. All right. I'm pushing the mic forward so I can put my elbows on the table and sell you NARM. (laughs) Not actually really, but I just As you were talking about that, I was relating to that and recognizing that part is healed. I have moved to the other side of something. I'm already sold. Yeah. The struggles that I'm having now are more a product of really looking into the face of my trauma and trying to make sense of it. But that questioning of self, that questioning of self-worth, right? am I worthy? And I'm not worthy unless I'm perfect. That has been my struggle my whole life, but that's not there anymore. Wow. First of all, good for you. That couldn't have been easy. No, no, I almost died. Yeah. 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 So, and I don't say that to brag. I don't say that, right? Obviously. Yeah. But I, I mean, I guess I'm patting myself on the back in a, Hey, oh shit, that did happen. Yeah. I mean, when you said that energetically, I just, 
I moved back, not in an intimidated way, but in in a way of like, oh, we need to make space for all of her. Like more of you came online and it was really Hmm. just beautiful. Thanks. Yeah. It's kind of cool when you can look back, right? Because I know you have those things too, where you're like, oh, I don't do that shit anymore. Right. Right. There is healing from trauma. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's why I'm so passionate about it because mm-hmm. people will say like, oh, what a hard job. That must be so draining. And I find it so hopeful and so mm-hmm. beautiful and, and sometimes draining and very often painful, but like you can completely change somebody's quality of life with sometimes gentle <laughs> interventions. Right. What I was thinking of too, I hope listeners, no one has complained about NARM, but I just kind of feel like when I talk about the same thing over and over, people are like, shut up. But that could totally just be in my head. But the other thing that was so important for me to learn in NARM is that whenever I'm feeling burdened or overwhelmed or struggling with a client in any way, shape or form, and truthfully, it's not the clients, it's whatever is getting in the way for the client, right? Mm -hmm. Their trauma, their addiction, whatever it is. And again, it's on a really fucking deep level, the amount of responsibility that I'm putting on myself to make change happen, right? Mm -hmm. And something major changed. Part of it was recognizing that I'm putting that pressure on myself and being able to put that to the side. And then the other piece of it is just really feeling like because NARM actually works, I don't have to work. Before I didn't have enough of a framework and you probably yeah. have way more of a framework than I do because you had somatic experiencing. But yeah, before I was just kind of doing stuff that I intuitively knew was right. And now that I look back, a lot of it was NARM adjacent and I was in the right area, but I didn't know the steps to support. Right. You know. No, that totally makes sense. I, I do feel similarly about my experience with somatic experiencing, which like when I learned it, I was like, oh, perfect. Here's the language for what my body like kind of already wants to be doing anyway. Right. But now I know the protocol and you're totally right that there is a level of trust, usually for my clients and other people, but perhaps I will internalize this one day personally, that when this comes up for you, if we hold space long enough and do X, Y, Z, things will resolve themselves in a way that your body needs. I do really deeply trust that in the room. And I think that that is palpable. And I think Mm -hmm. that it makes the space a little bit safer for people to go into territory that they were maybe unsure of initially. Yeah. And now that you say that, I think I didn't really believe that before because part of my childhood trauma was people not recognizing that there's trauma and denying it. Uh-huh. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. That's and so good. and my mom was really good at saying the right thing, but not embodying it. Yes. Yes. I, I think mm-hmm. that that really resonates with me with the embodiment piece in particular. Obviously, somatic experiencing is very body-based. And I think mm-hmm. that, again, with truly the best of intentions, my parents did say the right thing. And because mm-hmm. they had not done their work, their bodies were not corresponding. Like their bodies were just like, not saying what their words were saying. And I found out that it was a lot easier to respond to their body than it was to their words because the Mm -hmm. body's running the show. And so bridging that gap for myself and figuring out what my own body is saying, because, you know, your childhood is when someone's supposed to be translating looks like you're sad. It feels like that in your chest. Maybe this is what you need from that. Mm-hmm. I didn't get like quite the instructions that I needed because I wasn't attuned to in the way that really made sense to my reality. Right. Yeah. I think I said this to a client the other day. Your story is a really good example of 
a failure in the environment, not a failure in the parent, right? right? Your parents did everything, quote unquote, right, followed the books, and the environment failed. And love is not enough. We need attunement. <laughs> right. And if we don't have that attunement, that's where our adaptations develop based on that being a traumatic experience. Right. Absolutely. This might have actually come from the training that we were in together. So forgive me if I'm telling you something that you already I know. I forgot everything. So just tell me. Great. <laughs> so the somatic response to misattunement is not what I thought it would be, which is anger. But in fact, it's shame. Mm -hmm. That that is what your body feels when you are being misattuned to. And Mm -hmm. for me, that really helped me understand my like internal experience. I had so much misattunement. And again, like some of it was just totally out of the control of my parents. Mm -hmm. My mom's father passed away when I was four weeks old. There's no, yeah, yeah. Of course that impacted you. Of course. And there's, there's just no way you can attune to your kid. Like there's Mm -mm. just no way. And Mm -mm. while that makes sense, looking back on it, I'm sure at the time as I experienced it, there was just this existential shame that I, I mean, I'm I'm working through it, but I can touch into that still, you know? Mm -hmm. So making that connection was, quite profound for me. Yeah, you're going to love NARM because it's also going to give you other language and even like expand that piece because we talk about, so that's the child experience. And then as an adult, the shame that we're experiencing is we're just doing it to ourselves. And we do have choices. You're so right. Right? Because it hurts. It hurts. And that that we're kind of pushing away from is agency. The agency that we do have capacity to make choices now. Oh, right. Disgusting. (laughs) Disgusting. But that's it. Like that was the thing for me because I continued to push agency away. And especially through the NARM training, just like fucking kicking and screaming and like throwing it across the room. And it wasn't until I was able to integrate that, Mm. that that shift really happened. Gosh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm really like, I'm coming into contact with the part of me that would like to throw agency away forever and be like, can someone Mm -hmm. else finally just do this for me? Yes. And that's like never going to happen. So yes, exactly. listeners as this process just happens on screen. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's it. The work continues. Right. (laughs) And I mean, we could keep talking about this forever, but I want to respect your time and you have a lovely family to go attend to. So before we leave, would you tell listeners where they can find you on the social medias and stuff? Sure. So my practice that I have is called Sacred Roots. And so my Instagram handle is at sacred.roots.consulting. And you can also email me, I guess, if you like really want to. It is sarah at sacredrootsconsulting.com. And you can go on my website, which is unsurprisingly (laughs) sacredrootsconsulting.com. And there's plenty of resources. We have a consistent brand. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. It was my Mm -hmm. pandemic project. Made it very pretty. But yeah, there's plenty of resources on my website. Books that I recommend for all different types of categories, parenting, trauma renegotiation, anti-racism, just all different types of things that I tend to sprinkle into my sessions. So people are welcome to go there and check it out. Awesome. And is there anything that we didn't talk about that you really want to make sure to share with listeners before we say goodbye? Hmm. I think that as it relates to the donor-conceived people conversation that that I know that I talked about it in mostly a curious 
interested kind of way and that it would make a lot of sense if people are in any way connected to this topic that it doesn't necessarily feel like that yet. Mm -hmm. And that's totally fair. And there are really good resources out there that John or Sibling Registry website is lovely. It's really cool. Yeah. And they have articles and all types of things, not just the registry itself. So to just be tender with yourselves because it is an existential level kind of world altering and that's some pretty big stuff. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here. This conversation was just so awesome and I'm glad I made it weird, but you brought (laughs) a lot of wisdom and just goodness. So thank you. Thank you. Told you she was awesome, didn't I? So thanks to Sarah for being a wonderful guest. If you want to find more about Sarah and her work, you can go to our website at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. And as always, thanks to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for being amazing, wonderful editors. I love them so much, OMG. And thanks to Liam O'Donnell for the album art and Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, bye-bye.